morning, church. We are officially one week away from Christmas, and if you've been following along with us for the past couple weeks, then you know that we've been going through some of Isaiah's uh, prophecies in the Old Testament to prepare ourselves for Christmas, to help us recapture what it really means and why it matters for our lives today. So this morning, what we're going to do is complete our very brief tour through Isaiah by looking at chapter 35. So we're going to go ahead here on the front end and just read that entire chapter. It's verses 1 through 10, Isaiah 35, 1 through 10. Here's what it says. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall there be any ravenous beast that come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now, if I had to summarize what we just read, I would just use two simple words, new creation. Isaiah is prophesying about a day in the future when God will rid the created world of all sorrow and sighing and there will be only gladness and joy forever, which of course is awesome, but the real question is, what in the world does that have to do with Christmas? Because this is supposed to be a Christmas sermon. And here's my short answer to that. The first Christmas was the dawn of this new creation. Now what I want to do is spend about the next 30 minutes or so just unpacking that statement by walking us through Isaiah chapter 35 and answering three simple questions. Number one, what is this new creation going to be like? Number two, when will this new creation happen? And then third and last, why does the new creation matter for us today? So let's start with that first question. What is this new creation going to be like? Let's listen to verses one through two again in Isaiah 35. Here's what he says. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. So in the chapter right before this one, in chapter 34, Isaiah actually prophesies that the enemies of God's people are going to be made into an empty and barren wasteland. In other words, they're going to be destroyed. But here in chapter 35, you see the opposite is true for God's people. He's going to turn their wilderness and their dry land into a paradise, a lush garden oasis where flowers will blossom. So instead of destruction, what we see here is creation, what Isaiah would call new creation. Later in his book, near the end of it, he'll explicitly call this the new heaven and the new earth. 
But it's not only the created world out there that's going to be made new. God is also going to make his people new as well. This is going to be like one complete package. You can see this in verses 5 through 7. Again, Isaiah chapter 35. He says this, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Now pause right there for a second. Isaiah now is prophesying of a day when even the physical human part of creation will be made new. But, but listen to how now he connects that to the renewal of the rest of creation. Listen to what he says as we continue. We're in verse 6 in the middle of it. He says, For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. So, so what I really want you to focus on there is that, that word for, that little word for translated from the Hebrew actually connects a cause and an effect. In other words, what Isaiah is saying here is, is the human part of creation in verses 5 through 6 is going to be made new for or because the rest of creation described in verses 6 through 7, the wilderness, the desert, because they're going to be made new. So the destiny of humanity is bound up with the destiny of nature. And the Apostle Paul actually said pretty much the same thing and probably had scriptures like this one in mind when he wrote his letter to the Romans about 800 or so years after Isaiah. So this is in the New Testament. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8, 19 through 23, and just notice the similarities. Here's what he says. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation, talking about nature, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, obviously, we could create an entire sermon series just from those verses, but the main idea is clear. The created world around us has been bound up with our fate ever since the beginning of creation. God made us humans, the book of Genesis tells us at the very beginning of the Bible, he made us humans to tend the earth, to make it beautiful, to make it productive, to care for and have dominion over the animals. In return... The created world, what we're calling nature here, would be our home and provide us with life and pleasure. So we were bound together. And that's why when we sinned, when humans rebelled against God and ran away from their creator, we dragged the rest of creation down with us. And that's why we read in the third chapter of the Bible that God not only cursed Adam and Eve for their sin, he also cursed the ground and he cursed the serpent. Decay and death didn't just enter into humanity, it entered into all of creation. But thankfully, that wasn't the end of the story. All of creation, Paul says here in Romans 8, has been groaning like a woman about to give birth and eagerly waiting. Literally, that means on the edge of their seat. Well, the question is, on the edge of their seat for what? He tells us, for the redemption of our bodies. Creation, nature out there, is waiting excitedly for the day when God will make our bodies new, just like Isaiah talked about in chapter 35, because that will also be the day when he makes all the rest of creation new as well. So now that we've seen this this general picture of how God's new creation is going to be all-encompassing, I want to take just a few minutes to dive into the incredible details of Isaiah's vision of this new creation. 
he describes what I would say are five characteristics that are going to define the new creation, and we'll just walk through them one at a time. The first characteristic I'm calling perfect life. We saw this in verses 5 through 6 again. He says there's going to be no more blindness, deafness, lameness, or muteness. Human life will be better than it ever has been since our fall into sin. In other words, it will be perfected. But this better perfected life isn't going to be just limited to humans. In verses 1 through 2, which we read just a second ago, we saw that not only is the dry wilderness going to blossom with flowers, Isaiah also says that wilderness, that land, is going to be glad. It's going to rejoice and actually see the glory of the Lord. Now, obviously, on one level, this is Isaiah being poetic, like the prophets often are. He is figuratively ascribing human emotion and senses to non-human nature. But on another level, I believe he's actually describing the fact that nature will somehow be more alive than it is right now. Think back, I know that sounds odd, but think back to the Garden of Eden where life was perfect before sin came in and ruined it. So we're talking about the very beginning of the Bible here. In that garden, the book of Genesis tells us that a snake spoke to Adam and Eve. Now, we know that that snake was actually Satan in disguise, but Adam and Eve did not know that. And and yet, when you look at the text itself, there's no hint of surprise or suspicion when that snake begins to speak to them. It was almost like that was a natural part of that perfect world. And then if you fast forward a little bit in the Old Testament, there's the story of God actually opening up the mouth of a donkey to warn its master of danger. And then skip forward to the New Testament, and Jesus said that the stones would cry out to worship him if the people went silent. So we're treading on mysterious ground here, but but here's what I would say. Maybe the fantasy novels of people like C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. Tolkien aren't meant to help us escape the real world, but enter into it. Maybe, maybe true reality, freed from the corruption of sin and death, is closer to the world of walking trees and talking lions than we could dare to imagine. Tolkien himself, who is famous for writing The Lord of the Rings, once said that fairy tales satisfy the desire of men to hold communion with other living things. And if you think about it, of course we have that desire because all living things, including us, share the same creator. And as we talked about just a second ago, our fates are bound up together. And in this new creation, that desire to commune with other living things will somehow become a reality because God will give us back and nature back the life we were always meant to have. So that's the first characteristic, perfect life. The second characteristic of this new creation is perfect joy. At least eight different times, Isaiah uses some word in this chapter related to joy, glad, rejoice, joy, singing. And like we saw just a second ago with life, this joy will permeate not just us, but all of creation. We're told that we will sing, but we're also told that nature will sing. And this joy is not going to be just a repeat of what we experienced in this life. It will be new and full and perfect. Why? Because it won't be intermingled with sadness. Verse 10 tells us that sorrow and sighing will flee away and joy will be everlasting. So think for a minute about the moments in your life where you've been the happiest. We're in the Christmas season right now. How about Christmas morning as a child? Or maybe your first kiss or your wedding day. Maybe the first time you held your newborn child or or even the day you came to faith in Christ. Even those happiest moments in this life are tinged with a certain sadness because we know in those moments that they're not going to last. But in the new creation, every moment will be like those moments, but better. 
because they'll never end and they'll never have to share space with moments of pain and sadness. So we're going to have perfect joy. The third characteristic in this new creation is perfect beauty. Back in verse 2, Isaiah tells us that the land will not only rejoice with joy, it will not only blossom with life, it will also be given the glory of Lebanon and the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. Now, those names may not mean anything to you, but in Isaiah's day, Lebanon and Carmel were the names of these mountainous areas in or near Israel, and Sharon was actually the name of this plain that stretched from from like the western part of Jerusalem all the way down to the Mediterranean Sea. And if you read through the Old Testament, it's pretty clear what you'll find is that these land areas were famous for things like their grand cedar trees or their vineyards that produced the choicest wines, flowers and herbs that grew abundantly, and the cool waters which flowed down from their snowy peaks. Now, obviously you may not have a mental picture of those specific lands, but just for the sake of comparison, living here in the United States, think about things like the Rocky Mountains, or the Blue Ridge Parkway, or the Napa Valley Vineyards, and we could keep going, but Isaiah's point is this, that in the new creation, That kind of majestic beauty, the kind that stops us in our tracks and and just keeps us in awe, that kind of majestic beauty won't just be limited to certain areas. It will cover everything, even what used to be barren wasteland. So we'll see perfect beauty. The fourth characteristic of this new creation is perfect community. So from the description so far, you might get the impression that this new creation is going to be like one giant national park where humans will have perfect bodies and will just frolic around enjoying nature. And if that were true, it might be nice for a few days, but life would get lonely pretty quick because we weren't just made to enjoy the world around us. We were made to enjoy it with other people. And that's exactly what we're going to do in this new creation. Look at verse 10 with me one more time. He says this, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. In this new creation, Isaiah tells us that God's people, the ransomed of the Lord, he calls them, will come not simply to the promised land in general, that's true, but they will also come to Zion, which is the city of God. And think about that. What is a city? What makes a city different than all the land around it? Cities are places where people from different tribes all live, work, and play together in close proximity. Also, not only that, but cities are often where what you might call culture is really developed and perfected. We're talking about things like music, art, literature, entertainment, recreation, food. So I think too often we imagine our lives in eternity as being very boring and very uniform, like we're going to be lying around in white robes on clouds strumming harps or something. And listen, if that's what waits for us in this new creation, I'll be the first to say, please take your time, God. But that's not the picture Scripture gives us. We're not going to lose our personalities or skills or interests and just become some giant featureless blob who've become one with the universe. We're also not going to lose culture and fun and pleasure. None of that is Christianity. If you want a better picture of the hope that Christianity offers, just listen to this beautiful description from Isaiah himself in chapter 65 of his book. We're in chapter 65, verses 21 through 25. And here he tells us that he's talking about what he calls the new heaven and the new earth. He says, They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. 
They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. In this new creation, we will live together in perfect life, joy, beauty, and community where we will build and plant and work and eat without disappointment or loss or fear or pain. But none of those four characteristics that we just talked about are possible without this last one. The fifth characteristic of the new creation is the presence of God. Listen to the end of verse 2 again. It says this, They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. All of creation will see the glory and majesty of God unfiltered and unobstructed because God himself will be present like never before. And so the reason that this new creation will have everything that we just described is because God himself will be there and he is the source and also the ultimate goal of life, joy, beauty, and community. So all of that sounds pretty amazing. But when I tell my children I have an awesome surprise for them, they only ever have two questions for me. What is it and when can I have it? So we've answered that first question, right? What is it? Now let's answer the second. When will this new creation actually happen? And Isaiah actually explicitly answers this at the end of verse 4. We're in chapter 35. In the middle of talking about this new creation, he says this in verse 4. He says, Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. So what he's saying here is that creation will be renewed and transformed. That's what he's been talking about the entire chapter. When God himself comes to save us. And that's exactly what we celebrate at Christmas, isn't it? The coming of God through the birth of Jesus to save us. Listen to how the angel explained it to Joseph in Matthew's gospel. This is Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, a very famous Christmas passage. It says this, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So on the first Christmas, God clothed himself with human flesh in order to save his people. That's why he took the name Jesus. Jesus literally means the Lord saves. So Isaiah, back in chapter 35, looked forward to this day in history and said, God will come to save us. And since we just saw that Isaiah 35 links God's coming with the renewal of creation, then that first Christmas when God came, that must have ushered in the new creation. But let's be honest for a second. To any, to any sane person looking around at the world or looking inside themselves, it sure doesn't look like the same new creation that we just spent 10 or 15 minutes talking about. Because instead of perfect life, when I look around, I still see a lot of disease and disability and death. Instead of perfect joy, there's still a lot of pain and grief and sorrow. Instead of perfect beauty, there's still a lot of decay and corruption and ugliness. And instead of perfect community, there's still a lot of division and fighting and broken relationships. And instead of God's glory and presence filling the world, it's still too often that we're tempted to cry out, God, where are you? So then how can we say with a straight face that the coming of Jesus on that first Christmas ushered in the new creation. And this actually brings us full circle 
back to the beginning of the teaching. Remember I said back there at the beginning that Christmas was the dawn of the new creation. I I was choosing my words carefully there. When Jesus was born, the first glimmers of light broke over the horizon. And as he lived and taught and healed and died and rose again, those glimmers became rays that grew brighter and brighter. And one day, the full noonday sun will come, and once it rises, it will never set. But right now, we're still only in the dawn. So then you might ask, well, if this new creation has indeed dawned, as you're saying, where can we actually see evidence of it right here, right now? And the Apostle Paul himself actually tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. So we're in the New Testament now. We're going to come back to Isaiah 35 in a second. But here's where we can see evidence of the new creation right now. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So this new creation has dawned inside of everyone who has placed their faith in Jesus. And now because of that, they have his spirit. They have God's very presence living inside of them. And remember, God's presence is actually the very heart of this new creation. So we we have his presence inside of us. And because of that, we also have the first fruits of all the other characteristics of the new creation right now. The New Testament actually teaches us that if we put our faith in Jesus, we have right now eternal life. We also have what the New Testament calls unspeakable joy. It also tells us that we are being transformed into the beautiful image of Jesus Christ as we behold His glory, as we behold His beauty. And we've been adopted into the eternal family of God where we live together in love as a community of brothers and sisters in Christ. But the question you might be asking now is, well, why did God do it that way? Why did he decide to start this new creation inside of us before letting it break out into the rest of the world? And here's the simple answer, because there was a problem that had to be solved before we could enjoy the fullness of this new and perfect creation. And Isaiah actually talks about it back in chapter 35. So again, Isaiah 35, this time we're in verse 8. Listen to what he says. He says, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness, The unclean shall not pass over it. So in the middle of God's renewed creation, which is what Isaiah is talking about that entire chapter, he says there's going to be a highway. Well, a highway leads somewhere. Where's this one leading? He told us in verse 10, we've actually already talked about it, it's leading to Zion, to the city of God, where we'll live in perfect community in God's presence. But notice the restrictions of this highway. It's called the way of holiness, and the unclean shall not pass over it. No unholy sinners will be allowed to dwell in God's new creation in God's city. Now, I realize that sounds harsh, but there's at least two simple reasons why, if you think about it, it makes complete sense. Number one, this new creation is going to be perfect. That's the whole point of renewing it. But if sinners like you and like me are allowed to be in it in our sinful state, then that perfection would be gone. We would do exactly what we do now eventually we would selfishly seek our own benefit to the detriment and ruin of the people in the world around us, and it would no longer be a perfect new creation. That's the first reason why this makes sense. The second reason, maybe more importantly, sinful people can't be in the new creation because God himself will be there in all his glorious presence. Now, follow me for a second. In the Old Testament, Moses, a man of much greater faith and character than probably most of us, he asked to see God's glory. 
but God actually told him that it would kill him to see the fullness of his glory. So what he did is he hid him behind a rock and he allowed him just a glimpse of his glory. And even that, we're told, caused Moses' face to shine so much that the Israelites actually cowered in fear when he came down from the mountain. Now here's the point. God is so holy. He is so pure, so good, so loving, so just that for unholy, impure, self-loving sinners like ourselves to come into the fullness of his presence would be like flying a shuttle into the sun. So you see, we can't be part of the new creation where God will be fully present in all of his glory until the problem of our sinfulness is dealt with. Now, if that's all Isaiah told us in chapter 35, it wouldn't really benefit us. It would diagnose us, but it wouldn't cure us. And, and the promise of a new creation at that point then would just be a carrot on a stick that we could never reach. If this highway is only for the holy and the clean, then who can ever walk on it? But Isaiah doesn't stop there. Remember, that was verse 8 in chapter 35. He goes on to say this in verses 9 through 10. He says, No lion shall be there nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. The only way that unholy and unclean sinners will enter this new creation is if the Lord himself redeems and ransoms them, if he buys them out of slavery from sin and makes them his own. Now the question is, how is he going to accomplish that? And Isaiah himself describes what it's going to take in chapter 53 of his book, verses 5 through 6. You've probably heard this passage before, but I'm going to read it again. We're in chapter 53 now, verses 5 through 6. It says this, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah here is prophesying that one day, from his vantage point, God the Father will ransom and redeem his people from their sins by sending his son as a servant who will take the punishment that their sins deserve on himself so that they can have peace and be healed, so that they can be made whole. And that's exactly why the angel told Mary that her, that her child would be conceived by the Holy Spirit and named Jesus. Because he's going to be God in the flesh, come to save his people. Not simply save them from their hardships or from their oppressions, but save them from their sins because that's the core problem. What this means is that holy infant, so tender and mild that we sing about at this season, was born to die, to redeem us from our sins so that we could walk on the highway of holiness and enter the city of God where we will live forever as part of God's new creation. So Jesus, through his first coming at Christmas, has inaugurated this new creation by redeeming our spirits from sin. But he will also come a second and a final time to complete the new creation by redeeming our bodies from death. And when that day comes, when the dawning sun finally reaches its noonday height, not only will we be fully and finally liberated from corruption, but just like we saw with, with Paul in Romans 8, so will the rest of creation as well. And so now all of that brings us to our final question. Now that we know what this new creation is going to be like, and now that we know that it's already begun, but the best is yet to come, the question is, how should all of that knowledge affect the way we live today? In other words, why does any of this matter 
right now. When Isaiah first wrote down the words of his prophecy, his people, the nation of Judah, were living in what you might call uncertain times. They were facing threats both from within and from without. Inside the nation, the worship of God had degenerated basically into just empty ritual, and the poor and the vulnerable were routinely being unjustly taken advantage of. And then outside the nation, the Assyrian Empire was threatening to conquer them and take their people captive. And all of that had obviously a profound effect on the spirit of the people. Listen to how Isaiah describes it in chapter 35, verse 3. He says this to them, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Now think about for a second the picture that he's trying to paint with those words. Why do hands need to be strengthened to work and to fight? And why do knees need to be made firm to stand and to walk and to kneel in worship? But Isaiah says the people's hands have grown weak and their knees have grown feeble. Instead of standing up and moving forward and working and fighting and worshiping, their knees have buckled and their hands have gone limp. They've fallen down in despair and fear. They've lost hope and they've given up. Now, does any of that sound familiar? You've probably noticed, like I have over the past year or so, that a lot of businesses right now are having trouble hiring workers. And that's not just an illusion. It's not just a conspiracy theory. This has actually been a growing problem for a long time. The work rate for what economists call prime age men, that's men between the ages of 25 and 54, the work rate for those men has been on a steady decline since 1965. It's currently at its lowest rate since 1940. And according to economist Nicholas Eberstadt, this is a Harvard-trained economist, he says that 90% of those prime-age men who have dropped out of the workforce, 90% of them are not simply delaying work due to family issues or education or training. No, no. He says they're voluntarily not looking for work. And here's how he described it. I'm going somewhere with this, so just listen to this carefully. He says, according to their self-reported data, these labor force dropouts basically don't do civil society. They don't do worship, they don't do charity, they don't do volunteering work. Although they've got, you'd think, almost nothing but time on their hands, they don't do much help around the house with other people or housework. They don't get out of the house that much, they say. What they say they do is to watch screens. They report clocking in about 2,000 hours a year in front of screens, as if this were their full-time job. And other information says about half of these guys report using some sort of pain medication every day. That's exactly what Isaiah was just describing. These men's hands have grown weak. Their knees have become feeble. Prime age men who should be working and fighting and standing up and leading are instead laying down and giving up. And, and, and this apathy and anxiety and hopelessness, it's not just limited to prime age men. It cuts across all demographics. Earlier this month, the Washington Post printed a study that actually found that 45% of high school students were so persistently sad or hopeless in 2021, they were unable to engage in regular activities. And almost one in five, these are high school students, almost one in five seriously considered suicide and 9% surveyed tried to take their lives during the previous 12 months. Now listen, I could keep listing studies and statistics like this, but I'm guessing you probably don't need to hear them to believe the point I'm trying to make. I'm guessing you've probably either seen this firsthand or you've experienced it yourself. So many people, and maybe you're one of them, are losing hope and giving up. 
And we could give lots of answers for why this is the case, but I believe in most cases it all boils down to this. So many of us believe, or at least we behave as though we believe, that this life, this broken world is all that there is, that there's nothing outside it or beyond it. And listen, if that's true, then yes, why put forth any effort? Why get up? Why stand up? Why work? Why worship? Why fight for anything, right? The reasonable response, if this is it, the reasonable response would be to either freak out or just stop caring, to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But Isaiah tells us the opposite. He speaks to these people and he says, no, strengthen your weak hands and make firm your feeble knees. Now, how in the world can he expect us to do that? Listen to the next verse in Isaiah 35. This is verse 4. He says, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. What Isaiah is saying is that there is more to this life. There is something beyond this broken world. We have a God who will come and save us by making all of creation new. And even better, because of Christmas, we get to say something that Isaiah could not say during his lifetime. We get to say that our God has come to save us, and he's already begun this new creation. So therefore, we can get up and stand up and move forward and work, build, love, defend, and worship. And yes, we can also eat, drink, and be merry, but not because tomorrow we die, but because today and tomorrow we live. When I think about Christmas in this context, framed by the truths of this new creation, it reminds me of one of the final scenes in the Chronicles of Narnia book series. If you're not familiar with uh, this book, Narnia is a magical land ruled by the great and good Aslan. He's a lion. In the final book of the series, the, the heroes from all the previous stories actually get to go somewhere even better than Narnia. They get to go to what's called Aslan's country, which technically is a symbol for like heaven. And they actually enter into that country, we're told, through a magical stable in Narnia. So as I come to a close here, I want you to just listen to what these characters say when they come out of this magical stable and they see paradise in front of them. Here's the quote. There was the blue sky overhead and grassy country spreading as far as the eye could see in every direction. It seems then, said Tyrion, smiling to himself, that the stable seen from within and the stable seen from without are two different places. Yes, said the Lord Diggory, its inside is bigger than its outside. Yes, said Queen Lucy, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. On that first Christmas night, when Mary laid her weak and helpless little baby down to rest in a feeding trough, that tiny manger inside that tiny stable held the creator of a brand new world. So now let us look back on that stable and be reminded that the birth of Christ was the dawn of a new creation. And through faith in Christ, we get to be a part of that new creation right here, right now. So strengthen your weak hands. Make firm your feeble knees. Be strong. Fear not. Our God has come. Let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Christmas for this special time of year where people who don't even necessarily consider themselves Christians feel a certain kind of hope, and they may not even know why they feel it. I pray that this year, this season, through, through the power of your Spirit, through the witness of, of your children, that they would come to know the real reason for those feelings of hope that they get. 
It's because God himself has entered into history to save us, to save us from our sins, not, not, not just to do so spiritually, but also to recreate everything around us, our own bodies, nature, animals, the universe. He's going to make it all new, and it all started with the birth of his son who was born to die for our sins. So we give you thanks for Jesus Christ, for sending him for us to take our place so that we could be made new. My prayer is that we enter this Christmas time just a week away that, that if we're struggling, if we're about to feel like we have to give up, or if we just don't see any end in sight to the sufferings that we experience, if we just have apathy and don't seem to care, may you, may you rid us of all that by reminding us that, that this is not all there is. This broken world that, that seems to be falling apart, that betrays our trust so often, this is not all there is. You are making all things new, and you've called us into it to be a part of it. So through those truths, through your Holy Spirit feeding those truths into our soul, encourage us and strengthen us and give us hope this Christmas season. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I hope you all have a Merry Christmas.